thank you guys for letting me continue with this overview of the Old Testament and Lamentations. Coming out of 2 Kings, we remember that Judah is going into exile. It is a hard time of good kings and bad kings. We have Josiah, the last good king. I think it's four or five kings before we enter into this. Um, but I wanted to open up to the floor before I start. Does anybody know anything about Lamentations? What do they think of when they think of Lamentations? Other than lamenting, of course. What was that? I was going to say that. I was going to say lamenting. Lamenting, right. <laughs> lamenting. Well, there's not much. Uh, Peter Lee comments here. He said it's the most dark and depressing canonical writing in the whole Bible. And he said that most people really haven't even heard a sermon over Lamentations. I don't know if any of you have. Anybody? Not really. Yeah. Haven't either. So I'm going to do my best to at least handle this scripture that pastors dare not to touch when they bring it into the pulpit. So we'll see how it goes. Um, so we'll start with the introduction here. Containing Lamentation is poetry. So in 586 BC, the exile happens. Kingship ends, the king goes into exile, and so does God's chosen people. The book itself is composed into five acrostic poems. And likewise, it shows in point three of the introduction, the stability, the fluidness, the elegance of the poem amidst what's happening in exile. It's instability, disorder, chaos, destruction, and suffering as Judah is falling into the Babylonian empire into exile. And here we see Hebrew poetry communicating two types of poetry. We see a kinah, so it's little hope for Israel. I like to bring up Ezekiel 19, which is the same type of poetry as it expresses Israel's fall. There's really no expectation to come out of this fall. It's really just a eulogy. Israel is essentially dying. What they were no longer exists. And in Ezekiel, there's really no hope for God to, excuse me, to restore them. Whereas a communal lament would be the other part of Lamentations. Both are true here, the Kinah and the communal lament, which is similarly in Psalm 44. There's multiple other psalms, other parts of Scripture that do speak of a communal lament. And we see that there is a plead and an expectation for God to come to his people and to restore, to hold them, to hold God in his covenant faithfulness. And we see at the end of 44.26 is the last verse. It says, rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And in there we do see the psalmist recanting what he knows and that God will hold fast to his covenant. And, and in Lamentations we see both of those. You see both the communal lament and the kinah. And it kind of goes back and forth. Likewise, I said, Peter Lee said it's the most dark and depressing canonical book. Never mentioned in the New Testament. So not only do pastors not touch it, but neither do the New Testament writers. Um, so you're very brave. <laughs> you're very brave, I guess you could say. Um, so let's enter into the background of issues. Um, the, the biggest thing is really the authorship. So when we come to figuring out who actually wrote this, we don't really know because Jeremiah doesn't say it's him. So how do we know it's Jeremiah? Some people have different views. But if we go back to the Septuagint, so in the earliest being 200 BC, we do see that Jeremiah is a claim to be the author of Lamentations. There's no, like I said, authorship, but we can also conclude in different scriptures here. So if we look at Lamentations 3, 
verses 48 and 51, in comparison with Jeremiah 14, 17, we do see similar language of languish and the expressions that are used in both. Um, so we see in Jeremiah 14, 17, you shall say to them, this word, let my eyes run down with tears night and day and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people is shattered with a great wound. Where in Lamentations 3, verses 48 through 51, it says, My eyes flow with rivers of tears. Because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, my eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. So similar language is also expressed in Jeremiah 9, though it's not exactly the same words. Obviously, it's the same writer. He would use similar language, and that's what we see here. But I think what really makes me think it's Jeremiah is 2 Chronicles 35, 25. And this is by no means a perfect example of Jeremiah being the actual author, being attributed the true author. But at least it says here, in 2 Chronicles 35, verse 25, Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah. And all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. So Jeremiah has a track record of writing laments. And so I think that we can come to the conclusion, and I will refer to the poet or the person who's writing Lamentations as Jeremiah, because I truly am convicted that it is Jeremiah who actually wrote this passage and wrote this book. But, I mean, if you go on the other side, you do see other people who do have a case, though I don't think it, to me, myself, is a strong one, that this is being wrote after the temple is being rebuilt. So in the post-exilic era, when Jerusalem is back in the Promised Land and they are rebuilding, as the writer is reflecting on what happened, why are we back? Why are we here? And that's what some authors think is essentially who wrote this book. Um, other theories state that um, it could be written by multiple people. I mean, you have the first two. You'll see when we get to the outline and the message. But you have the first two chapters being a picture of a woman. And Zion's picture is a woman, which comes to now a single person in chapter 3 who is experiencing the mourning and <coughs> in this as a personal um, issue. But then you have the last two chapters as a completely different part. But I think if you see... And as one flowing thing, it makes more sense to see that one author is expressing different points of view um, among the whole, the whole book. So either we can conclude that it's a first-hand witness, or B, someone contemplating the destruction um, generations after. And likewise, I do think it's, it is Jeremiah who's a first-hand witness of experiencing what's going on as they do go into exile. <clears throat> So then, we'll bring us to the outline here. So five chapters, it's really not too long. It's kind of just boiled down into five points. Five chapters, five points. We have the first outline, or the first part of the outline, the shame in the morning of the city, chapter one. We have chapter two, the Lord as the primary agent of wrath. That's chapter two. Chapter three, the lament of the afflicted man and his community. Point four, the city besieged, Lamentations 4. And finally, we come to the communal lament finale in Lamentations 5. So, 
So let's get into what this book's all about. Let me get over here really quick. And the message behind what Lamentations really talks about. And I think one of the biggest things that people see in Lamentations is that God, who's afflicting Jerusalem because of their sin, how can God, with his chosen people, the same God who is slow to anger, who's steadfast, is merciful, he's gracious, and abounding with steadfast love, how can he cause these people, his chosen people, to go into exile, to die, and to experience what they are experiencing here? And I think it's hit on the head in Lamentations 1.18. When Jeremiah says here, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples, and see my suffering. My young woman and my young men have gone into captivity. Jeremiah himself knows that the people of Jerusalem are in the wrong. It's not that we should look at God and say he's not right for what he does because it's, it's wrong, or because he's inflicting suffering, or he's the agent and his wrath is coming down on Jerusalem, but the fact that Jeremiah himself, who is attributed as the righteous portion of Jerusalem here, is seeing with his own eyes that God is in the right. And so let's bring us into chapter 1, the shame and mourning. Well, why are they shame? Why is there shame? Why is there mourning? Well, primarily, we see in chapter 1, verse 5, for the multitude of her transgressions, because the Lord has afflicted her, her children have gone away captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, this is verse 6, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that, no, that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem, who is known as this person who was a strong stronghold before nations, who had the Lord's strength, who never really saw a day when they didn't have God's favor on them and now experiencing the exact opposite here. And why is it, verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievous, grievously, therefore she became filthy. God had given Jerusalem over to her, her own sin after generations of patience, generations of bad kings, good kings, idolatry, but Jerusalem never turned and repented in true faithfulness to God, who has always held his end to the covenant. So we are moving on to chapter 2 here. And how does this bring us to the next chapter? The Lord is the primary agent of wrath because it's God's anger. Why is all this mourning, why is the shame happening? Because God is experiencing, excuse me, God is afflicting this on his chosen people. God is a good father and a jealous God has seen long enough and experienced heartbreak. He has had patience throughout generations, but for the good of his people, he has given them over to what they want most. And that is not to be in relationship with him. It says here at the first portion, under God's anger, Jerusalem lies desolate, humiliated in exile from the Lord's burning anger. Babylon is coming to, God, to Jerusalem, not because of some reason for them to be defeated by Jerusalem, but for God's wrath that he has against them. And I think this really brings us to another issue with the character that God never gets angry, like I said before. And 
This really isn't the case. I think God was patient throughout the years. And Jerusalem had many, many, many chances to repent, and they never chose to. Um, likewise, in <clears throat> verse 22, it also says here that you summon as if to a festival day my tears on every side and on the day of the anger of the Lord. I always think back to how Jews really, they celebrate a lot of things. When God does something right, they set up memorial stones. We've been learning in, in the book of Joshua. They set up holidays to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate all these things. And likewise, Jews actually to this day celebrate what happened here in another holiday as they remember what happened in Lamentations normally happens in August. So they celebrate not the fact that God had done something miraculous, but the fact that they are reminded of who they are before his sight. So we see that not only is there a feast within this book, And there's constant holidays where people are celebrating, but in the same emotion, yet the exact opposite. We see a terrible event that is celebrated to remind Jerusalem who they are before their God. As we move into chapter 3 now, in the restoration portion of Lamentations, So God's anger is burning against his people. Jerusalem is experiencing hardship. They don't don't find relief. They search out for their God and they don't see any experience. They don't understand why this is happening. Though Jeremiah does and he tries to warn them, he understands what's going on here. The The subject now shifts from Zion as the main subject to a man who has seen affliction. This is a first-hand witness as Jeremiah is speaking. He sees it all, and he is also trying to make sense of everything. In verse 1, it says in chapter 3, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. I think it's important to note here that Jeremiah is seen as somebody who has warned Jerusalem. In Kings, in in Jeremiah, he is warning the people to turn from their sin lest they fall. He actually predicts that this will happen as we looked at last week. And it's like I said, it's important to note that Jeremiah is really experiencing the sin of his brothers and sisters around him. In Israel, when they sin communally, they do so as affecting everybody around them. It's not that one righteous person will fix the rest, although we do see that eventually. But in this case, the communal body is affected. And similarly, we see that in the church. When some people fall, when one person sins within the church, it affects everybody around them. And Jeremiah is experiencing the same thing here. But likewise, I've titled this portion Restoration because I wanted to see, I want us to see what here makes sense. Why is this the most important part of the scripture? Why do we come into chapter 3? First of all, why is this the most lengthy chapter out of all the five? I think it's because Jeremiah wants us to see the most important thing. And if we look at the introduction to hope. So in this lamenting, Jeremiah gives us a chance to hope. 
And it's appealed to God's steadfast love, as we read in chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. But I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And here Jeremiah is not bringing new words, but he is remembering what he has studied and what he's read in Psalms. Jeremiah is remembering the language that the psalmist used and coming back to what is true about God, that the Lord is his portion, that despite all the anger and the wrath that God is pouring out on his people, that he has made a promise that is continued from David and will be sustained and come to pass. And he awaits that day. And he trusts God in faith that despite everything that's happening, he will trust and he recants, recounts the steadfast love that never ceases from the Lord. I have written in my margin with arrows pointed to verse 17 and then to verse 21, mm-hmm. choose. And it's, mm. I think, in at least in my mind, as I was studying this last year, you can choose to have the despair that he expresses in 17 and 18, or you can choose to have hope. Mm. And that hope, and I, I love the fact that this particular chapter is in first person, because he gives us an example that, okay, I right. told you everything that will happen, and now it's happened, and mm. it's bad. But I still have hope. He he has chosen yeah. to have hope. I think that's maybe what your patient needs to hear too. You can have hope even in the midst of despair. Yeah. No, I think that's really good. And you see, and, and like I said in the introduction, is it's not that Jeremiah is taking his emotion and he's pushing it down. He's bringing it to God. But he's also remembering the truth that God gives us. And, and it's not that we should solely focus on our lament or our grief or what we deal with, but we should also focus on the Word of God and what God has said to us. Both are true, and we cling to them as Jeremiah does here. Like you said, if um, God didn't judge His people, it really wouldn't show His love to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, and without judgment, like a bad parent, you just let you can't let them go on and on and on in their sin. He does that to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's when we know we're, we're truly a child of God. <laughs> yeah, experiencing. Yeah. So, continuing to Jeremiah, like I said, he is speaking on behalf of Zion here. He is the last person that understands, he feels as he's done everything he can. He told Jerusalem what is going to happen. He warned them, no one responds. So, so what is he left with? He's left as the person who who can speak on behalf. One person that Jerusalem has, and we see that here in Scripture, that God was listening. It says in verse 40 of chapter 3, Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord now. Jeremiah is turning, and he is saying, People, please do this. Come back. Verse 41, Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. Jeremiah is trying again to bring his people back. 
and yet they don't listen. Not only that, I do want to point out one little thing too. At the end of verse 3, a little twist comes where it starts talking about, in, in verse 59, Jeremiah says, You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, the people, the, the Babylonians. Jeremiah now shifts his focus to Babylon, who the Lord has used to afflict Jerusalem. And so this kind of brings like an interesting dilemma where God is using Babylon to afflict Jerusalem, yet Jeremiah still recognizes that they are still guilty of sin. They're not just let off the hook. And so the way I picture it is not that God is behind Babylon, pushing them from behind. But picture as God has constantly been the defense, the guard that has kept nations out, that has protected Jerusalem. And finally, he is allowing them to come in. And it's not that God is forcing their intentions, but he is allowing them to take place. And though they are still wrong, God will have justice upon the enemies of Jerusalem. can move into chapter 4 here, the point where it says Zion's depravity. And I think the, sh- the shift now is back to Jerusalem and their sin. Jeremiah says something pretty bold here. Um, I want to point out in verse 6. For the chastisement of the daughters... Of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was thrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. I think when we also we we tend to look at our our nation as very Sodom-like. When we see what's going on, we look around and who do we compare it to? We don't we don't choose Jerusalem. When we see everything's going on and all the issues around in America, we often say it's very much like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not like Jerusalem. But what does Jeremiah say here? He doesn't say that. He says that, actually, you, Jerusalem, are experiencing something more greater than what Sodom did. And why is that? Because you're just as guilty, if not more guilty, than Sodom was. God almost showed mercy to Sodom by smiting them down and not letting them experience suffering at all. But he sends Jerusalem into exile. And so it's a mix of the greatness of his punishment, but also mercy that he lets them continue in the line. And I think that's one of the hardest things to see here, um, as we see in verse 10. That's kind of what's happening. We, we talked about it earlier in Joshua, when, excuse me, in, in Leviticus, it says in verse 10, the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children and they became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Talk about dark and depressing. <laughs> this gets pretty much to that point. But it's not, I think the, the hardest thing for me to see here is where did Jerusalem go? When they started experiencing suffering, what was exposed? And it was who they truly were, their heart. And they weren't restored. They weren't renewed. 
They didn't have a heart that wanted to seek after God. What, did, what happened? When things got hard, they ended up going to their sin. And I think sometimes we often think when life is good, we are doing really good. But when we're entering into moments of suffering, when times get hard, we may not be falling into the same sins that they do. But now we are exposed to our own hearts and the depths of our sinfulness. And we see that exactly here in verse 10. How deep is the sin? It's like Sodom. And in this case, this woman was boiling her own children. But still, now we remember in chapter 3 that Jeremiah was talking about God's faithfulness. He was talking about his covenant love. And though he's coming and understanding and seeing and trying to get Jerusalem to know why they're dealing with what they are. In verse 22, it says here, The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. Once they're in exile, their punishment has been administered. God has done what he did because of their sin. And we do see eventually that they do come back and they are restored. That God has administered his wrath and his anger upon them. But God is still covenantally faithful. And we'll continue that line of David. So let's look at chapter 5 here. And here, if we look at the poetic structure, it's kind of hard to see here, but the acrostic structure is completely gone. What we had before was order, was stability amidst everything, like I said before, but he loses it all. It's as if Jeremiah is seeing everything that's happening around him. He's understanding the truth of what he remembered about God and who he was and how faithful God is to his people, yet what they're experiencing, he can't keep it in anymore, and he lets everything go. There's no structure. There's still 22 lines, but it's not as ordered as it was before. And I think it shows how Jeremiah is looking at everything, and he's just writing down what he sees. It it says here in verse 11 through 14, Women in Zion are raped. Young women in towns of Judah, princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men, their music. He is looking out at seeing everybody and what they're experiencing. And his emotion is not able to contain it anymore. Though he sees that, in verse 16 it also talks about the suffering and bondage. Now he sees each person individually But what has happened collectively? The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. But then, three verses down, what is also simultaneous in his writing. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Jeremiah is still lamenting. He's still suffering and experiences everything. He sees the pain. He sees the hurt. And he's talking about it. He's not stuffing it down. But also, he sees that God is faithful. That God reigns forever. That two of these things can be true. That suffering can occur. And God can also be providential and loving. 
And I really think the closing remarks of this are captured in Psalm 89 and a reflection on that. Jeremiah is also coming back to the Psalms again. And in verses 1 through 37 of Psalm 89, we see God's sovereignty. We see his steadfast love and we see who he is and how faithful God is and what he is to his people. But the second half, we see much like the other half of what we're experiencing. is a cry for God to remember. To come and to bring his people out of suffering. And to restore them to who they were before. So I kind of touched on most of the notable passages here, but I do want to bring a couple back as we look at them really quick. Like I said in the beginning, before we got into the message, is Jeremiah is saying that God is in the right here. Why is God just in all the affliction and all the suffering? It's because of the patience he has but the sin that he has to justly deal with. That they cannot just go off the hook when they have been unfaithful in their covenant that they made with God. In 2.7, chapter 2, verse 7 in Lamentations, a notable verse 2 is God is destroying his dwelling place. It says, The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces, they raise a clamor in the house of God as on the day of festival. This wasn't just a judgment of sending them into exile. It was God withdrawing his presence completely from them. They were no longer going to have their access to God. And that is a privilege to have. And they lost it because of their sin. God finally withdrew that. His generations of calling them to repentance has now led to this. The temple has been destroyed. The ark is given in the hands of Babylon. And Jerusalem can no longer have direct access to their God. So that's similar to if we get to a place in our Christian walk where we're not living for the Lord and we're in sin. I mean, we feel as if God's not present sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, that's kind of troubling. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think that's... It's similar in the sense of not that we've lost access to God, but as a good father, he is still there, he's present. We just feel that way because we do. Yeah. Like they, they were, they mm-hmm. were, you know. Yeah. Just it does. It does. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a picture of what it looks like when we give ourselves over to sin, is we almost force that on ourselves as we feel that God has left his dwelling place, he's not given us access to himself. Often if we feel that, I think it would be wise to look introspectively at our own hearts and see what is keeping us from that. Yeah. So Lamentations 22, 23, steadfast love and suffering. We went over that. But also in chapter 3, we have verse 38. Something important that we've touched on throughout this so far. Thank you. 
Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? And I think we can think, too, that we know God is always good. And good always comes from God. But when the bad comes, it's not that bad is sin. God isn't administering a sinful desire upon his people here. He is simply giving people, he's administering justice. The suffering that are experienced here is bad in our eyes. But what are we to do in the midst of God's holiness? He's a holy God and we are expected to obey. And the same language is mirrored here in Amos 3.6. Very similar language. It says, does a disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? God is ordaining all these things for our good. For Israel's good, trying to get them desperately to see who they are and why they made the decisions that they did, and yet they never did until they came back. So what does this say for approaching the New Testament? Where's Christ in this, and where can we see God in Christ? Well, quite literally in Matthew 23, he is the suffering servant. He understood Christ, understood that Jerusalem was hard-hearted here as it reads in Matthew 23, verse 37 and 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, stone those who sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus here is suffering and seeing exactly what Jeremiah did and is that his people after cry and call after call would not respond. He also, he also bore the same, he bore the cup of suffering. In back in Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 12. Verse 12, it is nothing to you, all you who pass by. Look and see if there is any sorrow like mine, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Jesus took the anger that was destined for us on himself. That with lamentations, what Jerusalem experienced here, every single one of us should have dealt with. We should have deserved this in greater But Jesus took that upon himself here. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he is mourning, he he is expressing the same lament that Jeremiah did here. We see Christ in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. It says here, All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. Jesus was humiliated in the same way. But he was also restored in the same way that Jerusalem was. And finally, 
I think we come back to, despite all the lamenting and the grief and the pain and the sorrow, we have restoration. And in Revelation chapter 21, it reads, Behold, Yeah, 21 verses 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That all the grief and lament that we experience in this life is not permanent, but it's temporary. That one day Christ will be our comfort, and we will not have to understand or experience the same things that we did on this earth when Christ glorifies us and we are in his presence forever. So let's pray as we finish up. Oh, Father God, Lord, thank you for your patience. God, thank you that we, as your church, can come and see from the outside, what was going on during this time. Lord, that we can experience times when we are far from you and know that you are just as near as when we feel that you're far. God, we pray that we would see this as a warning too. Lord, that you are faithful, but who are we but an adulterous nation? Lord, lead us into obedience, lead us to renewal, as we seek not to be far from you, but to be near you, God. Renew your people and help us to see you for who you truly are, Lord. To feast from your table, to drink from living water, and to be renewed by your spirit, God, that we may proclaim Christ to the end of our life. I pray all these things in his name. Amen.